This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Cat Coven. Cat Coven is an online shop for weirdos, witches, and warriors created by Brooklyn-based artist Kirsty Ferret. The shop is a way for Kirsty to share her magical artwork on products ranging from apparel, catnip toys, pillows, mugs, patches, and other accessories. Her illustrations are inspired by her love of art history, witchcraft, feminism, and of course, cats. Nearly all the screen printed items are printed by Kirsty in small batches to ensure quality. Visit the shop at catcoven.com or on Instagram at cat underscore coven. And Witchwave listeners get 15% off their entire Cat Coven order by using offer code WITCHWAVE15. So pop on over to catcoven.com and use code WITCHWAVE15 for 15% off today. Are you looking for a way to deepen your connection with the moon? Luna Lux Botanicals offers lunar ritual bath soaks that are carefully crafted to help as you move through the lunar cycle. Set your new moon intentions while soaking in their lavender and mint blend, or celebrate the full moon with their indulgent rose and cardamom blend. And you know I love rose and cardamom. Each batch is handcrafted with intention using only all natural ingredients. If you're ready to take your lunar rituals to the next level, visit lunaluxbotanicals.com. That's L U N A L U X botanicals.com and use code WITCHWAVE, all one word, for 15% off your first order. That's lunaluxbotanicals.com and offer code WITCHWAVE for 15% off your first order. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. On today's episode, I welcome the visionary, ever-evolving artist, Kim Kranz. Many of you might have been introduced to her work, as I was, through her unique and beauteous and now ubiquitous tarot deck, The Wild Unknown. Kim has created several other decks and books and works of art, and today we focus on her new graphic memoir, Blossoms and Bones, a richly illustrated testament to the healing power of creativity. 
In our conversation, we touch on so many things, but I feel compelled to highlight the theme of non-duality, which we discuss and which keeps coming up again and again on this podcast and as a greater message for us all to embrace always, but certainly during transitional times of discomfort, like the one we're all living through now. The very idea of blossoms and bones might seem contradictory, but diving deeper into each of these images teaches us they are not opposites of each other, but rather complementary elements that both hold life and death. I've been thinking a great deal about blossoms and bones myself lately, as we're entering the heart of this blooming season here in the Northern Hemisphere. The surrealist artist Unica Zern wrote an autobiographical novel called Dark Spring, and that phrase has been echoing in my head for weeks now. Here in New York, the trees are exploding with flowers, and the weather is warming. And yet we're still isolated in our homes as much as we can be, and we're surrounded by disease and death. How do we reconcile this? The answer is, we don't. We do. We don't. We do. And so it is in all of existence. We honor the opposites and try to make space for their twins and halves. A good reminder for Gemini season, come to think of it. If we were in the Roman Empire, right about now, we'd be celebrating Rosalia, a festival of flowers, wherein roses and violets would be placed on burial sites to honor the dead. Though both of these flowers are often associated with romance, it was also believed that their red and purple coloring was evocative of blood and bruises. And of course, flowers allow us to witness and contemplate the cycle of life, death, and rebirth that happens throughout nature. Blossoms rise and fall, and so do we. I've been mulling this over a lot while taking my now regular cemetery walks. I think about how the bones of my body step above the bones of those no longer with us here in the material realm. I think about how, as a witch, I consciously honor the shadow and the light. How I can weep sadly over a grave and gladly beneath a canopy of cherry blossoms all in one spot. How the dead feed the living. How bones become blossoms, and blossoms descend upon bones, adorning them with memory and love. There have been so many moving stories that have come out of this pandemic. 
but one that left a huge impression on me is a New York Times article about Tanisha Brunson Malone, a forensic technician at a morgue in Hackensack, New Jersey, who on her own time and on her own dime lays out daffodils on the body bags of every coronavirus victim that comes through her hospital. It's a beautiful gesture, not only because it honors the dead and adds to their dignity, but because it lifts the spirits of the funeral directors who then receive the bodies and of Tanisha herself, who says that she decided to do this when she was feeling her own despair and exhaustion and that she finds it therapeutic. And now everyone who reads this story in the Times can feel a little bit inspired and perhaps even a little bit healed by her ritual in turn. I felt equally moved when I finished reading Kim Kranz's book, Blossoms and Bones. Taking pain and alchemizing it into an artful story that others can share is one of the most magical and meaningful things that humans can do. In Blossoms and Bones and in all of her work, Kim reminds us that creativity is its own form of spellcraft. And I am so honored to share our conversation with you all today. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Suniva writes, I am a Norwegian 25-year-old living in Ireland and have done so for the last nine years. A year ago, I got out of an emotional and mentally abusive relationship of five years. Since then, I've been diagnosed with anxiety and depression disorder. After just starting medication last year, my friend decided to take me and her children to County Down, Ireland. While we were there, we visited a crystal shop. In that shop, I saw this artificial skull, and I fell in love with him as soon as I saw him. I told my friend, I cannot leave without that skull. So the next day, I went back and bought him. When I arrived home, I had panic attacks and extreme anxiety for three days straight. It was horrible. But on the night of the third day, something told me to grab that skull, hold him, touch him, and feel him. I thought I had gone mad, but I did pick him up, and within minutes, I felt extreme relief. He has ever since been beside my bed. Now, finally, to my question... I want to focus mostly on Norse and Celtic gods and goddesses, along with the main Wiccan gods and goddesses. Gaia, Venus, the Horned God, Freya, the Morrigan, Rhiannon, Odin. 
I just wonder if these gods and goddesses work together. I am scared of mixing up too much or having too many gods. Lots of love. <laughs> Hi, Suniva. First of all, I hope I'm pronouncing your beautiful name correctly. Extreme apologies if not. I am so sorry that you went through such hardship, both with your relationship and then your mental health struggles. And I'm so glad that you seem to be feeling better now. And I'm also really glad to hear that it sounds like you've gotten some medical treatment or therapy. And as I always say, I hope you continue that if you need to, because magic is not a replacement for professional medical care. And it sounds like you know that too. But now onto your question about having too many gods or mixing gods from different paths. The short answer is any god or goddess can theoretically, quote, work together, as you say. It really does depend on the individual and it depends on which deities are resonating with you personally and which ones feel as though they are calling to you or connecting to you in a deep instinctual way. Everyone's path to magic is their own and is completely unique. But I do want to suggest that if you're just starting out in your practice or you're feeling overwhelmed, it's often a good idea to focus on getting to know just one or perhaps two deities really, really well. Remember, this is a relationship that you are cultivating. And just like your relationships with people, it takes time to get to know a deity one on one. And your relationship will hopefully get deeper and richer the longer that you're working together. It's the same as if you're dating a lot of people or hanging out with lots of different friends. There's technically nothing wrong with it, but you're never going to get a sense of real intimacy and deep trust and surrender unless you devote your focus in a more concentrated way. That doesn't mean you can't expand your circle over time and add to it. I myself now have several primary deities and then a number of others I work with in a more limited capacity. But I think it's best if you build up to that and really take the time to get to know them and learn from them and research their history and stories and symbolism. Now I can hear you asking me, then which deity should you start with? And I might suggest that you have already answered this question for yourself. You just told me a story about how a skull was a powerful and healing symbol for you at a critical time in your life. So if I were you, I'd start researching skulls and deities and mythology. A quick Google search told me that the Norse god Odin carried around the head of Mimir, who was renowned for his great wisdom. So maybe Odin is where you should start, since that head or skull imagery is associated with him. 
Then again, the Morrigan is a Celtic goddess of death. So maybe that resonates for you right now. And remember, as I was saying earlier about flowers, bones and skulls are not only symbols of destruction, but they can also be symbols of resurrection and transformation and structure and support and strength. And you've experienced that yourself already with your crystal skull talisman. So that is my recommendation. Keep following the skull and see what god or goddess it is leading you to. May it help you find further wisdom, healing, and much, much magic. Now on to my guest. Kim Kranz is a visionary artist, author, and creator of the New York Times bestseller, The Wild Unknown Tarot. The Wild Unknown Animal Spirit Deck, The Wild Unknown Journal, and The Wild Unknown Archetypes Deck and Guidebook, as well as several children's books, including ABC Dream and Whose Moon Is That? Her new book for adults, Blossoms and Bones, Drawing a Life Back Together, was recently published by Harper One and is a graphic memoir about using art and ritual as tools of shadow excavation and spiritual transformation. Kim received her BFA in drawing at Cooper Union in New York City, her MFA in mixed media at Hunter College, and an MA in depth psychology and creativity at Pacifica Graduate Institute in California. She has also studied in-depth practices of yoga and shamanism in India, Africa, Europe, and the UK. Kim leads events and teaches workshops all over the world and online that activate the forces of creativity and radical transformation through art, meditation, mysticism, and movement. On this episode, Kim discusses how her creative practice supported her through a time of great grief, the deep magic of archetypes and symbols, and why we must resist flattening our myriad selves, both on and offline. Now, a quick content warning, this episode does contain some discussion about disordered eating, addiction, and miscarriage. We don't go into great detail, but it is worth noting if you are not up for those topics right now. And a sound quality disclaimer, as I've mentioned before, like a lot of podcasters these days, I'm not able to work out of the studio that I was using in pre-pandemic times. And to top it all off, there was some construction happening outside my office window, which led me to have to record this conversation out of a far more echoey room in my apartment than I usually use. So while there are no jackhammer sounds, there is a bit more reverb than usual. Kim joined me from where she's been sheltering in place via Zoom. Kim Krams, welcome to the Witch Wave. 
Thanks for having me. I am so overjoyed that you're here, Kim. I have been a giant fan of yours for many, many years, as I imagine many of my listeners are. So it's a true thrill to talk to you. Um, First and foremost, I want to ask, how are you doing in this wild (laughs) pandemic time? How are you doing today? And how are you generally doing? It is incredibly uncomfortable. I think we're all sitting in our own discomfort in different ways, whatever that might be personally for different people. For me, it's pointed out how much I really like to think that I know what's going to happen and what I'm aimed for and where I'll be in six months and what's next. And I can't know. So that's really, really challenging for me. And I've also been solo in my house with my sweet kitty cat for the last two months. So that's also been really challenging. But in a lot of ways, it's allowed me the time and the space to look at a lot of different dynamics in my life and reflect and clean things up. And I feel really grateful for this time, even though it's so uncomfortable. Absolutely. I can relate to so much of that. It struck me when I was reading your gorgeous new book, Blossoms and Bones, that this time last year, approximately, you were also Mm -hmm. in retreat and doing a lot of work that was very deep and I would say shadowy, which turned into this book, Blossoms and Bones, which we'll we'll talk about certainly in, in great detail. But I'm wondering, did being on retreat last year prepare you in some way for how you are doing now and for your current circumstances? A year ago, I I literally was writing the book that is now already out and published. It's been such a trip. In a lot of ways, I almost think that the process of creating Blossoms and Bones prepared me for this time. And I mentioned this to another friend of mine. I think that this time is preparing us for what's next, which we can't know right now. But it's so much easier for me if I think of all of it as a kind of preparation for what's to come. It's so common with artists and authors and people who want to make a book say that they make that book and then the reluctancy to think of it as, oh, that book is actually preparation for the next book that I have to write. Mm -hmm. And those three or five or seven are all preparation for this one that's going to come eventually. And it's that patience that's like so hard for me personally, but I think a lot of people collectively. So I'm trying to think of you know, almost everything I've created with the wild unknown, the tarot decks and animal spirit and the journal and all those things as preparation to create blossoms and bones. And then blossoms and bones is preparing me for what's next and what's to come. So I find that to be just a more supportive way to think about creative work in general. Mm, Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Are you saying that your creative work is always preparation for What's coming next? Yes. I'm saying that definitively. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I find that notion to be really evocative because so much of art, certainly, but I think a lot of creativity is about 
meditation and being in the moment. And I think I've either read you write about this or or heard you speak about this, that you get into this meditative, very present state while you're making things. And yet at the same time, you're birthing your future self. And I find that to be a really evocative paradox. Yeah, it's hard to tell which one's truly happening or if they're both happening at the same time. It's that idea of the hollow bone that you empty yourself out so much that you allow what needs to come through to be created. At the same time, that creation is no doubt defining, refining who the individual maker is. They kind of go hand in hand, this idea of like, I'm there fully and I'm not there at the same time. It's a kind of holding that dual space that's challenging and it's not territory that people are very comfortable with. So it's actually much easier to show up fully with the ego intact and be like, I'm Kim Kranz. I'm going to make this drawing that looks like a Kim Kranz drawing and people will buy it and I'll put it on Instagram right away. And it will look like, just like it should quote unquote. And that's one state. And then there's this other state that I could go into. That's like, I have no idea what I'm going to make. And sometimes I do this practice world like blindfold. I just did a series for seven days here of, of consecutive blindfolded drawings at night before I went to bed. They're big. They're like four by six foot. And I'd pick out collage pieces blind and pick out my inks blind and use my hands and glue and then turn the lights on and you know look at the work in the morning. And so then there's that space that I like to go into that where I feel like the quote unquote Kim Kranz, whoever that is, is like showing up as little as possible. I'm prohibiting her from saying, well, this has to have beautiful line work and a moon and a little bit of this and that on it. And instead it is this much more open-ended, super mysterious process. So I like to go back and forth and know those are my kind of extremities or the ends of the spectrums. And then I can decide when I'm doing a project, like where do I want to be sliding between those two selves, essentially. Mm. I really admire that because I think for a lot of artists and a lot of us who are just on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever, we do get rewarded for what people already like, right? And already expect of us. And one could look at your hugely successful, if you'll forgive the word, brand. <laughs> no, no, no forgiveness needed. <laughs> and say, like, you have created this iconic tarot deck, which I do want to talk about a little bit later. And all of these beautiful illustrated books and other decks and so on. And, and yes, your style is very, very recognizable. So I could imagine you or an artist falling back on that over and over again. And I really admire the fact that you don't want to and that you want to push yourself into these new spaces. But I imagine that also feels scary, right? It doesn't feel scary. For me, the scary part was when I fell into thinking that I was the wild unknown and nothing beyond that. That mm. was really scary time in my life. I felt so limited and trapped. I, I realized the the position I was in, it's a very privileged position to be able to develop a brand as an artist and support myself and others through that. 
So I want to say I'm also very grateful for everything that's happened with the wild unknown. But when I came to the point where I started thinking that was me, that was all the world wanted from me was the kind of that single note and that I was nothing beyond that, that I was a brand that was really painful. It was a painful time in my relationships, in my business and all of it, because you know, the difference between a brand and a, and a human is so big. It's not something we talk about very often, but a brand is often trying to refine and refine and become a, a single pointed thing that becomes very well known for and reliable and consistent. And the human being, on the other hand, almost makes the very opposite shape if, when it's growing. As soon as it starts to learn things and grow, it wants to learn and grow more and more and more. So I've always found those two kind of gestures to be really different. So again, it's a bit of a conundrum of like dualities there. It's that me as my true self is like very diverse and multi-layered and so many different ideas and interests going on. And then the brand needs to be kind of tethered to a central idea and identity and as do I, but less so. So once I discovered how painful it was that I was thinking I was the wild unknown and nothing beyond it, I busted out of my shell and I went to graduate school and I studied Jungian depth psychology and creativity. And I started to study archetypes and the diversity of the self that makes all of us so rich and so endless, infinite, unknowable. And so now I'm very aware of, I mean, social media is such a good example of this of that pain of becoming one thing. And there's also a, such a reward for it. Like you're talking about, it could be monetary, it could be likes and, and success and recognizability and image. And people become incredibly celebrated for that single note. But I'm convinced because I've experienced this and I think we don't experience things that other people don't also experience. We mm -hmm. just aren't alone, you know, mm -hmm. that it's painful for other people too. As soon as they become that like perfect looking, say they're like a yoga travel Insta phenomenon. What about the other 80% of life when you're filling up the tank of gas or something complicated is happening with your grandma or you're just bored and you're down and out or an old friend needs you. It's like we start to get in this mindset that, oh, that doesn't belong. And I'm only this single thing and the world only wants me to be this single thing. And I've just found it to be really, really problematic. Absolutely. It's like this flattening of the self. And I remember first encountering that Walt Whitman line, I contain multitudes. And it's almost become a cliche, right? You hear people say that a lot. But it's so true. We are all so complex and mutating and evolving all the time. So I can only imagine how challenging that must be once you become a quote unquote successful artist, right? And it seems to me it was from that dark space that this new book, Blossoms and Bones, was birthed. You were already having this kind of success that I think a lot of artists only dream about, right? Being able to support oneself through your art, having lots of followers, certainly creating work that's deeply meaningful to so many people. 
Yet at the same time, you were also dealing with some very intense struggles and painful experiences, which caused you to hit the pause button in a very major way. And if you could give my listener a bit of background in terms of what happened to you and what were you sifting through, which made you finally go, all right, I need to take a break and go within and you know, from, from which this book was birthed. Can you, can you kind of set up the context for us a bit? I will try. There's tons of layers to it, but the gist of it is a 12 year marriage and the wild unknown, the brick and mortar storefront in Portland, the e-commerce website. I had lost my fourth pregnancy and I knew that there was another life that was pulling me forward towards it, that I, that I had to get out of that confinement I'd constructed for myself. I didn't know what a huge step I was taking at the time. It's likely I would have stayed actually. Mm. So I left and then it was just kind of grief upon grief that I was sifting through. And I was living alone for the first time in a long time out on the Oregon coast. And it was a super creative time for me. I actually drew the entire archetypes, um, the wild unknown archetypes deck and guidebook during that year. Wow. I mean, the the creativity was off the charts, but my day-to-day stability had gone haywire. My hormones were all messed up from the methotrexate and I, I was really unhinged. And I was underestimating the grief. I was underestimating, you know, what it really means to leave a partnership of that magnitude or the foundation really kind of shattered and dispersed and how that translated into my life was like intense cravings. My relationship with food, which had been pretty neutral throughout my life, got amplified and I started having intense like body dysmorphia, getting hyper, hyper focused on my weight my image, my body. And so that resulted in restricted eating and binging and kind of going back and forth between those two extremes. I, you know, I went to India actually, and I was there for a month and I was in silence for almost all of it. I was practicing with a teacher of mine there. And after I got back home, I knew that I couldn't pretend any longer, that this thing wasn't overtaking me. And therefore, since it felt so big, the energy of it felt so big and nothing I could control. And I thought, well, if I've learned anything from depth psychology, it's that when something has that type of energy, it wants to become something. It's not just there to like fuck us up and cause a total disaster in our life. It actually has this intention of moving from unconscious energy, some will call shadow, towards the light. It's getting stirred up so that it can become. And I was like, I guess I just have to trust this and experiment with it. And so I went to the ashram and I said, I'll sit down and I'll draw this for 30 days. And 30 became 40. And that drawing experiment became Blossoms and Bones, the the graphic memoir that you're referring to now. It just came out basically the same time that we all went into quarantine. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And first of all, 
I want to say I'm so sorry for the grief and the loss that you went through. I know that you've transmuted it into something really beautiful and really strong, but I just have to say that I feel and sympathize and empathize with how painful that must have been. And I'm so glad you're on the other side of it as much as a human can be anyway, right? Yeah. In a way, I feel like it brought me back to like the grassroots life, life as the simple basics of life of like, wow, if one is addicted to a substance or food or drugs, alcohol, sex, their phone, it really brought me back down. It humbled me. It put me in touch with like amazing communities around recovery and Al-Anon. And I just started building this other set of tools that it just felt like such a relief. I go to my weekly Al-Anon and I, I work with my sponsor and to hear people say what they're really going through it moves me and it, it makes me so glad that I've let myself be honest about what was going on. So the reward for being transparent is like pretty astronomical. And I thank the grief in my own way as I can, because it's taken me on a pretty unique journey. And it's, it's such a testament, I think, to the value of art. Not that I think all art has to be cathartic quote unquote. I don't think it always has to be about mining our deepest, most painful experiences and exposing them vulnerably to the world. But there is this moment in the book where you refer to the value of sad songs and how every sad song is a testament to that artist, not only feeling the pain, but then turning it into something beautiful that other people can then relate to. So it is a great gift that you've given us by turning your pain into this beautiful, sad, and hopeful song. Yeah, transmutation is the word. You used it before. It's a really important word. It's like that idea that the sad song it says two things, and I refer to this in the book, but it says, I've also been where you are. The artist is saying that. They, they aren't saying it directly, but you know, and it doesn't have to be like a sappy, super emo song. It could just be a song that has a chorus that swells the heart up in this really specific way. And it's like, oh, this artist has been exactly where I am. And that's so important for us to keep reminding each other and then the second thing it does is it says, through that, I created this song that you're now listening to or this art or what have you. And that's really powerful because that's when the resilience comes in. It's like I transmutated the energy of that thing that could have taken me down any day. And it became this story or it became this painting or what have you. Yes. And it becomes a song that we can all sing along to as well. And it helps free up our voice then too. Exactly. And that's when it goes beyond ego or shadow work or kind of the image of the artist. It does this naturally. It services a greater sphere of people moves into the collective in a different way because the person is willing to say like, okay, I'm going to show up for this honestly, and I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm not looking my best here. But like, I trust that that will help others be able to find something in it and 
lead us into more of a collective field than an individual field. You know, the, the New York art world is so oriented around the single artist, the individual and their career and their retrospective and their oeuvre, and, you know, their work. And if you look at other indigenous traditions and more traditional folk art, it's often, you know, even in the Buddhist, the Tonka paintings of the deities, like there's no artist's name on the bottom right corner of mm. the painting. It all was kind of like an offering. And so it's interesting to kind of, again, balance those two states of like, yes, I have my Insta feed. Yes, I, I need to hit my sales numbers so my publisher's happy and do my promotional things. But also, I kind of want to take my name off of everything in some way, even if it's just metaphorically or psycho energetically, mm-hmm. so that it can belong to everybody. That's so beautiful. Kim, on that note, we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp, an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days. I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, Witch Wave listeners, that's you. Get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash witchwave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy. I certainly have myself, and I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. So please pop over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Kim Kranz. So Kim, we're talking about the origin story of Blossoms and Bones, but I would love for my listener, even though this is a sonic medium, to get a sense of what the book is. You know, you're describing it as a graphic memoir. 
for me, it feels like a visual self-love spell. I mean, we are watching you almost in real time, day by day, trying to even figure out what the book is. And I kept thinking about, uh, there's this writer you might be familiar with, Austin Kleon, who writes a lot about creativity. And he has a book called Show Your Work, where he talks about what a helpful and I think generous impulse it is for an artist to show the process of making and not just the complete kind of masterpiece at the end. And that's also what this book does for me because you are literally saying in the writing and in the drawings, like, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what this is. And you keep coming back to this phrase, draw the feeling. Like we're literally watching you grapple with the content of this book. So anyhow, I would love for you to speak a little bit about that, if you would. First, I want to go back to what what was the name you gave it? Instead of a graphic memoir, you said something no one said before. I, I think it's a visual self-love spell because, <laughs> because you are really transforming yourself through this book. And, and I don't want to give too much away, by the way, because there is so much revelation and so much peeling back of yourself in this book that I found to be astonishing and delightful. Just overall, the fact that you are, again, that word transmuting your anguish into something beautiful and figuring out what that beautiful thing even is as it's happening. I don't know. It just has this incredible transformative flow to it that I find really moving and deeply magical, Kim. Thank you. I mean, one of the big magical things for me that was happening, and just so the readers fully understand, like everything that is revealed to the reader while reading is also revealed to me while writing. Like the book was as much a surprise to me as it is to anyone opening it. I didn't plan to write this book. I had no map and no story arc and no guidelines. But one of the really beautiful things that happened was as I started to descend into some of those darker images and into some of the grief, which I had kept pretty tight lid on up till that point, I had the immediate boon of these really expansive kind of coming from nowhere, like cosmic prayers and blessings that were coming also as like visual poems and prayers that are scattered throughout the book. And I would come from my morning meditations and it was like, I would hear the entire prayer in the meditation and I would come down from the shrine and like write it down and then start to draw those pages. So as I went darker I also went brighter. And that was something I never imagined or planned. It was almost like the drawings were giving me just enough to move ahead. You know, when things got really grim in the book, suddenly there would be, I would have this new idea for a drawing and some unexpected prayer would come, this image. And it was like I was just being led forward in this way that I felt super held by creativity itself. I mean, I felt like the book was drawing me. I mean, that's why the subtitle is 
drawing a life back together. And I literally felt like Blossoms and Bones was holding me. It's like, I could say I drew it, but it drew me back together in that super chaotic chapter of my life. Mm, That is so exquisite. And just so the listener can imagine what they're seeing. I mean, there are images of skeletons, which come up a great deal. There are piles of garbage, but also these feckoned landscapes bursting with flowers and winged creatures. And there's lots of lists and diagrams. And it feels like an illuminated manuscript in some portions. You have to literally turn the book in all different directions to read parts of it. So it really is this unfolding, unfurling experience, both emotionally, but also visually. Yeah, it's quite unhinged, actually, (laughs) and unconventional. And I just went with it. One of the themes that comes up a lot in the book is this idea of non-duality. And that's something that I think most of us who are kind of keepers of the flame, if you will, who are walking the path of the mystic, or at least attempting to in our lives, come up against this notion of non-duality and hopefully try to embrace it or integrate it into our beings. And there's this phrase that actually my teacher, Robin Rose Bennett, taught me. And funnily enough, she was last week's guest on the podcast. And that's this phrase, both and. Mm. It's this paradigm of it's not this or that. It's holding opposites at the same time. And I think there's something really alchemical and, and beautiful about that. And that's certainly a theme that goes throughout this entire book. Is both and still a phrase that resonates for you and that is giving you some guidance, especially now in this collective dark time? Oh my God. Both and is like the practice of practices. And both and, they appear as two characters in the book and they came out of nowhere too. I never imagined a character named both and a character named and, and they're these yin yang symbols and they spin around and they become a bunch of different things through the book. So there was some like comic relief in there. Thank God, because the content's pretty challenging in other ways, but both and pop in the narrative often to remind the main character, the protagonist skeleton to like, stop being so binary about all of this. It's not either you're a good artist or a bad artist, or you have an eating disorder or you don't, or you're healed or you're not. A lot of these things that I can get in this mindset of like, well, I need to know, is it or isn't it? I found myself even like rereading that section a couple of weeks ago so that I could implement more of both and mentality or paradigm or perspective into my life now it's so challenging you know depending on how we were raised in our patterning and all these things of like there's such a tendency to think well are you or aren't you are you a good mom or are you a bad mom like those kinds of things mm-hmm. you know even like am i a mom or not if i ask myself that question biologically i'm like well no i literally don't have kids, but I've been pregnant 
you know, four times. And mm-hmm. I tend to many, many creative projects that feel like they're out of control and they grow up and I have to let them go. Yes. And so if I start asking myself that question, you know, when are you going to become a real mom? When are you going to become a real artist? Oh man, the pain that comes in that question. is like, it's so real. I can feel it like right now. Mm-hmm. And if I hold that other space of both and, I'm both a mom and not a mom. And that's true for families who have literal biological children. They are a mother and they're so much more than a mother. They're also all these other things. So it's like being able to hold that vastness, that expansiveness of both and, I think it's like the elixir of all elixirs in terms of growth and compassion and what our future needs. I think it's the tincture of the future. Yes. Yes. The philosopher's stone. Exactly. That's really, really beautiful. And it strikes me too, that a lot of the work that you've made is literally for children. You've made these incredible children's books and I was curious how your relationship with creating for children specifically may or may not have evolved given your own experiences of motherhood and loss and non-motherhood. It's interesting that you ask that because I've gotten less interested in making children's books. I haven't done children's books in a while Mm. and on the list of things I have to make. I have a couple ideas, but they're not the priorities compared to the other things. However, my interest in the mother as archetype and as protagonist, it couldn't be more alive right now. I have chills right now, Kim. <laughs> like just for what it's worth, I'm feeling this. I really, really understand. It's so interesting. I mean, I walked the Camino last fall and sat in those churches with all those virgin mothers statues and the black madonna and the mary magdalene and like that is just the most mysterious and infatuating territory for me right now even the idea of like the virgin mother <laughs> like what a concept mm-hmm. so anyway i'm being very vague but i'm very interested in the mother I think that's wonderful. And I'm so curious where that image is going to take you. And it makes me think of this quote by another artist whom I adore, which is Linda Barry. Mm. She says, the best way to write is to let the image pull you. You should be water skiing behind it, not dragging it like a barge. Exactly. That's very... Jungian depth psychological mm-hmm. perspective, follow the image was one of the main kind of motifs through my grad program was that the image, whether it arrives through dream, through some repetitious appearance, through who knows what, the image will lead you. I think mm-hmm. that James Hillman called image is the golden road to the psyche. I think that's what he said. Mm-hmm. Jung said it was the dream, but Hillman said it was the image. That's so powerful. And especially when I think about your work and how you've evolved and changed and grown so much as an artist. And yet 
as someone who's followed you for a long time, there are certain images that I've noticed you keep coming back to. So for example, I really love your music that you put out with Mm. Family Band. And I remember the music video for Moonbeams, which has these two skeletons. Yeah, you you go way back. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm telling you, fangirling over here. (laughs) But when I was reading Blossoms and Bones and saw these two skeleton figures emerging, I was really struck by how deep of an image that is for you that that archetypally keeps coming up for you. And I just wondered what the skeleton or what the double skeleton might mean for you, or if you even have words for it. I don't have words for it, but believe me, I was shocked when I finished that book. And then I went back and watched that Moonbeams video and was like, wait, I felt the thread of my life. I could see the thread piercing through all the narratives, just this single thread, that image of of the two skeletons together. And for the viewers, it's worth watching the Moonbeams video by Family Band. You can find it on YouTube. It's directed by my dear friend, Sam Macon. And Sam and I are actually working on the script right now of of adapting Blossoms and Bones Ah, for, for the screen. Yeah, for a movie. And funny enough, that video that we made 10 years ago wow. is the creative direction like reference for how we would want to bring the characters to life. Ah, how amazing is that? I know, I, I never would have guessed. But yeah, there's these themes, there's these anchors. It's funny, it's like you can't get away from them. When we look at other artists and their retrospectives, I used to work at the Guggenheim and they often have retrospectives. And a retrospective is so cool because you can look back and see, oh, I see these threads, these themes, these certain shapes or this certain image or concept or color and how the artist's life was kind of shaped by it. And they kept experimenting with it, returning to it. But while we're in the work, it's so hard to see that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll share a synchronicity with you about one of your images. I've been drawing a rose with an eye in it, like obsessively since I was a child. I mean, this is one of my weird totemic doodles. And as I've gotten older, I've seen, okay, other people have also drawn this or come to this, but it's a very, very personal image for me. So when I saw one of the I don't want to call them centerfolds. That sounds so <laughs> lascivious, but you know, one one of like the it. yeah, one of these beautiful double page spreads in your book with this gorgeous rose with the eye in the center. I was so moved, but also kind of shocked because it's such a meaningful image for me in my life. So it really did feel like what listeners know I call following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. It's like you follow those images and those clues. And yeah, I have to do my own journaling about why that image suddenly turned up for me again in your work. So I'm really grateful to you for it. It's so cool to find things like that. One of my very favorite practices that I learned at at Pacifico when I was studying depth psychology is that when there is an image like that, that's really compelling from a dream or from whatever that's just been following you around for a while, is to Google image search it with the word myth behind it. 
mm-hmm. or mythology. For example, like, you know, the, the honeybee or the triangle or the triple goddess or the circle, who knows what. And when you put that word behind it, then you start to get the archive of like different cultures and different artwork. And it's a slightly higher pitched, like (laughs) resonance to image search through than just like a typical Google image search. Mm. And you start finding that these images have been alive and around for so long and that they are most likely universal. And in that, it again, we we can loosen our grip on the individual and realize like, oh man, I'm part of this like web of humanity and this image is also part of that web. Yes, I'm sure you're familiar with RFs. The, I always mess up what it stands for. I think it's something like archive of research of archetypal symbolism. It's out of the Jung Center and the Taschen Book of Symbols. Yeah you know, comes from Ami Runberg, who for many years ran Aris here in New York. I believe she still does. And I highly recommend both their archive and that book also as as places for people to jump off and start following these visual clues. It's so cool. And it's so rewarding. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back. Hello, Witch Wave listener. I am so thrilled to finally unveil the Witch Wave Patreon. By becoming a Witch Wave patron, you'll get to access Witch Wave Plus, which has bonus episodes and ad-free full-length episodes. You'll also be able to join our members-only digital coven, where we'll be doing live video chats, sharing witchy news and tips, and where you can meet other Witchwave kindred spirits. Head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave to check out all of this and many other rewards. And thank you so much in advance for choosing to support the show. I truly appreciate it. And I can't wait to make some more magic with you. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Kim Kranz. So Kim, we're talking about symbols and images. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about tarot and your beautiful oracle deck and your archetypes deck. I understand that you don't want to only be known for those, but I also want to acknowledge how magical they are, how beautiful they are. And to my mind, especially your Wild Unknown deck, I think really helped supercharge this resurgence of tarot because you made this deck that felt so personal and so beautiful, but evolved it forward for, you know, I think contemporary viewers and querents. So how are you feeling about divination? Is this a tool that you use in your life these days? And, you know, just how are you feeling about the decks that you've created in general? It's an interesting question. Even thinking about the word divination is interesting because we often think about it as using a card or using a pendulum, which some might know almost the whole lineup for the archetypes deck was created and the names and some of the artwork was determined by a pendulum. And we often think about it 
divination as being tied to like cards or seeing a psychic or tea leaves or pendulum, but it's also just even in the word divination is divinity, you know, it's the divine, it's the asking mm. of saying like, hello, mystery that's beyond me. Will you offer up your wisdom? Because I'm not a bit of a loss here. It's super humbling moment. It's actually not that different than like the first step and the 12 steps and saying like, wow, I've, uh, I've kind of made a mess of things. I don't know what to do. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of like, it's humbling. And so I think I try at least to be doing that with my work, like constantly. It doesn't mean I'm using cards, but it means, you know, the blindfold is a good example of like, hey, you show me what this drawing wants to become. I'm going to step aside here and allow something mysterious to be the artist. So it's a long answer to your question, but I don't always tend to use the cards and I do that for a couple of different reasons. I have a <laughs> kind of intense and odd relationship with the decks I've created, as you can imagine, but sure, the one I love to use the most is archetypes. And I've been using that and doing like live Insta talks on different cards and stuff. That deck feels the most like home to me. The first two decks, I feel like I was really finding my way. There was like so much self-discovery in the making of them that it's hard for me to go back now because I just want to like kind of fix them or make them more elaborate. <laughs> so that can be challenging. Mm, that's so amazing to hear because I think people would be surprised to hear you say that honestly, which just goes to show how there's often a wide gulf between how other people perceive us and our work versus how we do. And I look at that deck, the Wild Unknown deck, and I see just such a masterpiece. But of course, you're the artist, so you can see things you want to fix and and change and noodle with. So, you know, we never stop, do we? (laughs) I see the redo. I'm like, oh, I see what came through and I, I love it and admire it. But I also, I just see myself growing. I'm like, oh, I, I was growing then. And you know, I think anyone who likes my work and has engaged with it over the years, they're growing with me through mm-hmm. work. And that's something I, it can't be helped if someone's authentically growing. They just are where they are at all times and they're making from that place. So I hope my work just like continues to show that process that you were talking about earlier. It's so helpful to sense that process. And I think it really is an act of bravery on your part to work out of that process. I mean, I I understand that you're saying this is all I know how to do, but I still think that there is this vulnerability and trust and surrender. You know, you are always the fool card, right? You're always stepping off that cliff and hoping or trusting that some big, beautiful story is going to catch you or take you on a journey. And to kind of close the loop a little bit, I was really struck by how Blossoms and Bones in a lot of ways goes through the journey of the major arcana, you know, and I suppose all transformation does, you know, you start off just being like, what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) Like, I don't even know what to expect. 
And then by the end, hopefully you're more fully integrated and can bring those gifts and those teachings back to the world. And then it starts all over again, doesn't it? I mean, this is so important, Pam, what you're talking about right now. It's so important because the journey of the fool and being willing to be the fool is so awkward. Yes. I mean, people wonder, like, what are you doing? Why is she doing that? I can't believe her. Look at her again. Oh, my God. And meanwhile, I'm thinking I'm barely prepared to do this. I have felt that with every single project I've ever done, I'm barely prepared to even begin. And when I finish, I'm like, oh, okay, now I'm ready to start that project. But if we don't start and we spend too long preparing and becoming the person we think deserves or should or is qualified to work with that content, our whole society and culture is lost. I, I say this with like such weight, but it's it, it's intentional because I really want listeners to feel that they're ready and they are the one to speak about and to address or work with or work through that precise thing in their life that they're aimed at right now. If they're on track, they will feel like the fool. And I feel this way with the deck that I'm preparing to make right now. I literally last night was just looking at all the content and being like, what the F, I can't make this. Who am I to make this? I need 10 more years to study. I'm not smart enough. I I haven't studied in such and such a place or with such and such a person. And I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. Both and are true. Maybe I am unprepared in these ways. I'm also prepared in these other ways. So I have to just step forward and say, I'll take on the task and help me. Like, okay, greater forces, help me then. If I need more preparation, work through me. Like, while I sleep in my dreams, while I'm thinking of other things, send the right books my way, send the right images my way. And in that way, I'm like, I simply have to do the best I can. And that's what the fool is ready to do. It's it's an aspect of life and creativity and solution making and culture making that I don't feel we're talking about enough. It's like we need each other. And if you think you need two years more training to do that, in some fields you might, like in the doctor field, you know, you sure. might. But to acknowledge where you are and how far you've come and to allow yourself to create what's ready for you. Mm. I love that so much, Kim. And bringing up depth psychology again, it makes me think of the hero's journey, the Campbellian hero's journey, and how the hero at first always refuses the call. The hero always says, I'm not ready. Why me? Can't you ask somebody else? Yeah. And then, yes, the teachers and the boons and all of these other things come along to help the hero, but only after she says, all right, I'll take that first step. And I'm just so glad that you keep taking step after step after step and that we can bear witness to your incredible magical artwork and that it can transform us in turn 
So Kim Kranz, thank you so much for your time. Before you go, how can people find you and more of your visual spells? You can find me at Insta. I'm on my personal feed, which is Kim underscore Kranz, K-R-A-N-S. And I'm a little more off the cuff and less branded there. (laughs) And it's a more open-ended, ongoing conversation. And then the Wild Unknown has its own feed. And that's more oriented around like the community and people who use the decks. And there's a lot of conversations going on there as well. And I have some websites too, but you can stay up to date on social pretty much. And I just want to emphasize once more how exquisitely special your new book is. Blossoms and Bones is available everywhere now. Hopefully you can go through an indie store if you're able to. Um, I, I just can't recommend the book more highly. And I thank you so much for your skeletons and your flowers and just keeping on making your colorful, bold, dark, bright magic. Thank you so much, Cam. Thanks, Cam. It's been a delight. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Kim Kranz for her divine wisdom, her skeletal petals, and her imaginal generosity. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that's happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thanks Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witch Wave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us loads of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now, And if you want more Witch Wave or you just want to support the show, please do join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.